Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Judd Lorson. Judd acquired Alliance CAS, a specialty collection agency, in 2018 as CEO, and in 2021 resigned from the role after a much more difficult role and path than he anticipated. Judd's story was recently profiled in a Yale paper by A.J. Wasserstein titled The Judd Lorson Story that we will link to in the show notes, and I highly recommend reading for background in Judd's time as CEO. For this conversation, we are focusing on new daily habits and foundations he has created, influenced by his experience, what he values today and how those values have changed over time, and the power of having a growth mindset. Please enjoy. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. How is a quality of earnings different from an audit? Well, there are a lot of similarities between an audit and a quality of earnings analysis, and namely in that both are a form of verification on the numbers, on the, the financial statements of the business. The audit conforms to a different framework of standards. It's very, in general speaking, it's not as flexible, and it's usually being done on a calendar year, a fiscal year basis. A quality earnings analysis is, is often, the objective is different in that it's um, focused on the business as it near the transaction that's there is a sale or purchase of the business and it can be flexible in evaluating the business through the most trading 12 months so the cutoff is different and as far as the adjustments that are usually being proposed or made to the financial statements that includes the customary accounting adjustment just to conform to uh, an accounting standards, but it also includes other type of adjustments that what we call normalizing adjustments. These would include adding back non-recurring expenses, one-time expenses, discretionary spend, um, or what we call them as personal expenses that are run through smaller business. And there are also certain types of performer adjustments we make. If there's any change, for example, to the cost structure of this business is because now you, the company has raised the salary and wages of all your employees, and now we need to take that into consideration and recast that type of adjustment and burden in the company historically. And that is not something that an audit itself would be strived to, to accomplish to, to give that view. And I would say, you know, the focus on the quality of earnings is namely on the revenue profile, the, the earning capability of basically the P&L, the income statement, as opposed to the audit that will be largely driven and focused on the balance sheet aspect of the company. So the objective is different between the two. And because of that, the scope is a little bit different. And that could also include you know, analysis around working capital that's done on a QOV, but not being done on an audit. Excellent. Thank you, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. 
I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Can you give us kind of the quick five, four minute overview of your journey as CEO and then your transition out of being CEO? Sure. Yeah. So I'll start at the beginning. So I'm sitting right today in North Central Pennsylvania. That's where it all started for me. I grew up here right outside of a small town called Wavesport, where the Little League World Series is hosted every year. That's kind of our claim to fame. Then I went to study engineering down in Philadelphia at Drexel University. It's a mechanical engineer. They had a co-op program where you could go out for six-month stints. So like after your freshman year, you didn't get summers off anymore. You were either in school or you were working kind of a full-time engineering internship. So I got to do three different internships through my through my undergraduate education. And I learned enough about what mechanical engineers typically do to decide I didn't want to do that right away out of school or maybe ever. I don't regret the educational experience or the mindset I think that I picked up, but it's clear to me that I wanted something that was a bit more hands-on, I guess, while not wasting the education that I just received. So I ended up joining the Navy out of college and went through their nuclear power training program to go serve on submarines, which was a kind of a a once in a lifetime experience. It's kind of one of those things that when you're on the other side of it, you're like, you're glad to have done it, but glad to be done with it. But I did that for eight years straight out of undergrad. Like I graduated in the middle of the global financial crisis in 2008, right? So in retrospect, like it was a wonderful kind of decision and career move that provided some stability to to me and my my wife. We got married right when I graduated from college. And I was deployed around the world, spent some time in the Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf, on board two different fast attack submarines. Officers are kind of a jack of all trades, master of none when you show up as a junior officer. So you learn the engineering, the engineering plant, the, the nuclear power plant, you learn how to be they call the engineering office of the watch. And then once you've qualified to do that, you move up to the forward part of the ship where you learn all of the combat systems and, and navigation and learn how to drive and fight the ship, essentially. And it's like, I mean, it's a pretty quintessential like leadership and responsibility experience. Like in your early 20s, where like I was the officer of the deck at like two o'clock in the morning on the surface in the Persian Gulf, like going in between like oil wells that are flaring off gas and having like dolphins like swim over the top of the ship. And I'm like, man, like this is a $3 billion submarine and the captain's asleep and I'm in charge, right? Like, are they sure they know what they're doing? (laughs) Right. It was a great experience, right? Like I learned a a tremendous amount about myself and about kind of how to lead and manage people. Before going to the next piece, like what was life on a submarine like? It was fun. It was challenging. It sucked, right? Like, I mean, it was all of those things. We would be gone on deployments from the U.S. for like kind of like six to nine months, depending on kind of what happened, right, in the world, right? Your nominal deployment would be six months. You'd be in and out of like a foreign port maybe every 30 to 60 days to like get more food. Like nuclear power submarines in the U.S., they're, they're limited by basically the amount of food you can carry, right? You can make your own water by... Uh, splitting down salt water into its elemental components, right? And air, right? It's like you can use reverse osmosis to make fresh water, right? Like you can make oxygen out of H2O, right? With a, a little bit of electricity. And, but you can't really grow your own food because you don't like have enough space. So, like, we'd have to pull in and out to get like more food to feed the people, right? And you could last maybe, be kind of like 
90 days or stretched to 120. We never really did that because like that was pretty miserable at the end of the, it would be pretty miserable at the end where you're kind of like eating all like beans <laughs> right, and rice or anything else that can be preserved for a long period of time. So yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a good experience. As I said before, like I did it long enough to get the t-shirt. I'm glad to have done it, but I'm also glad to like be on the other side of it and not doing it anymore. Yeah. I remember there was a, in middle school there there's the so i'm from portland oregon where there's this science museum and they have a a decommissioned submarine there as part of the museum you can walk through and one of the things one of the like school trips we did was staying the night in the submarine oh wow yeah cool even as like a 10 12 year old kid like it was a small submarine like the the bunks were three high instead of just two high and you if you like sat up too fast you'd hit your head and it was dark. There's no sunlight. There's lights, of course, but it's not. There's no natural light, and it was extremely claustrophobic. Like if you had, if you had any sense for like boundaries and personal space, it was going to be challenging. But yeah, I, I can't imagine that for extended. I assume you get used to it, and you can you can now like fall asleep next to a you know a radiator or something like that now. But you get like you just accept your circumstances, right? Like they do like a little bit of like psychological screening and stuff like that for people that are claustrophobic, et cetera. Right. But like once there's kind of like an interesting law that we learned when we got on the submarine, the law of finite happiness, once the hatch goes shut, right. Like happiness cannot be created or destroyed, only stolen from others. Right. It's like, it was an environment of like pranks and, and, and oscillating moods and behaviors. Right. But I don't know. It was, it was a good time overall and uh, a, a great kind of a great trial by fire experience. Anyway, so yeah, I did that for eight and a half years or so. And then as I was getting ready to transition out after you, after you do like the active deployments, you usually get kind of like a desk job as a breather to decide if you want to keep going in the Navy or if you're going to transition out and do something else. So I had pretty wonderful opportunity to kind of work at the submarine learning center in Groton, Connecticut, where I was stationed and, had a super supportive commanding officer there that was just trying to help me evaluate like if it was a good idea for me to stay in the in the navy and become a department head on a on a submarine or if it was if it was time to get out and do something else and i i ultimately decided my wife and i we didn't have kids at the time we were thinking about starting a family and we'd seen how challenging that can be when you're when you're going on deployments and stuff like that so i decided to get out and ended up using the gi bill to go to business school which was again kind of a great wonderful thank you from the, the military for those years of service went to Yale School of Management kind of right down the road from where we were where we were living at the time in Connecticut and allowed my wife who's worked at the, the hospital up in Hartford to keep her job and I got to go to business school for free right so like we had this like two years of for me like exploration my wife was working hard and she kind of gives me she gives me a hard time for that every once in a while right like i got a two year break right and she was working full time but like when i went to business school i guess the point i'm trying to make is that like i didn't feel as much pressure to pursue like traditional high paying career paths because like i wasn't going to be saddled with the same debt load that some of my classmates were right so i kind of came came in with that mindset and because of that i think that's that's part of what led me to search funds and ETA, right? I can remember, and I've, I've told this story before, and I tell it in the case study about how 
there there was a, a military veteran that had gone to Yale College and he was an older gentleman, but like he's a donor to the school and they brought him in and they roll out the red carpet for him and anybody that like he 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 supports in the scholarship form, right? Which is kind of like all the veterans, they'll get like five hundred dollars from books or something, right? Like you get something from them. We're all around the table and I can remember like everybody's saying like pretty normal stuff, like, oh, I want to be an investment banker, I want to go into consulting, right? And, I think out of a lot of us, I was the only one that wanted to be honest. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Right? Like, I think I want to own and operate a business, but like, I'm here to kind of explore that a little bit further. And I can just remember the guy, his name was Maurice Pinto. And he just had these steely eyes and he like locked eyes with me and said, you should do a search fund. Right. And I didn't like have any idea what a poor search fund. And I was like, okay, sir, that sounds good. Right. Like I didn't say like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Right. Like I just kind of like took it on board. And I can remember after that going home and just, Starting down the Google rabbit trail of of what what is a search fund? You come across the Stanford materials, et cetera, right? And then that was that was kind of my initial introduction to search and planted that seed kind of late in my first year at business school and went through the process of standing up a class at at, at Yale about search funds that AJ Wasserstein, who I understand was just a guest on the podcast, that he now teaches a, a series of courses there on small business acquisition and ownership. So I got to meet him and learn a lot more about what that meant, right? And decided during my second year that that's what I was going to do. So I spent most of my second year focused on how should I search, right? And this was back in 2017. I graduated five years ago. And the space has evolved quite a lot, frankly, since then. I'd say that it had it already it was starting on its kind of like explosive uptick at that at that point, but it was at the beginning of that of that process. So I, I ended up deciding to do a sponsored search with an accelerator and searched for a year and a half and then acquired a specialized debt collection company in South Florida that focuses on serving homeowners associations, so collecting past due HOA, condo, POA assessments in Florida, Georgia, North and South Carolina. I ran that business for three years as CEO. And then due to a variety of reasons related to, to my health, to my, my wife's health, and the state of our marriage and the stress that those three years kind of caused me, I decided to take a step back and work with my investors to make sure that we had good leadership in place at the company and took a step back to an advisory role. And that was a little over a year ago. In the past year, I've been sitting on the sidelines, doing a little bit of consulting and advisory work and, and trying to repair my marriage and spend time with, with my two kids that I didn't have when I started searching, <laughs> right? So, Yeah, a lot of what we're going to chat about is kind of like lifestyle and values and kind of vision for yourself. I'll be curious to hear like, what was the typical day or week like as CEO? And then Maybe maybe today, what would the optimum week look like if you were still CEO or if we're CEO of a different company, perhaps? Yeah. So I think, and I'll maybe I'll pick a time where it was like the worst, right? <laughs> to give you give you make a, a full spectrum. So I can remember this was after the pandemic started. So let's call it like mid 2020, right? My wife and I had just found out that we were pregnant with our second child. We were kind of essentially like alone in South Florida. We didn't have family around there. The business that I was running was able to quickly go remote. So like I would go into the office every day to like check the mail, get the checks that came in the door, stuff like that, but just kind of administrative stuff. But then I'd sit alone in an empty office. I'd get there at six or seven in the morning, right? I'd be on calls with 
lawyers working on lawsuits related to the prior ownership of the business. I'd be on calls with our lender on covenant violations and, and, and challenges with liquidity. I'd be talking to investors on a pretty frequent basis, keeping them updated with what was going on. I'd be talking to my managers kind of every day, right? I wasn't really doing any traveling anymore, but it was a very kind of like insular and isolating experience. And then I would come home six, seven, eight o'clock at night. My wife and I would like be courteous to each other and like talk for like a little bit, like eat dinner. And then she was like really tired because she was pregnant. So like she was sleeping a lot more. She'd go to bed. I'd stay out on the couch and I was like on this West Wing kick. So I was like watching the entire season of West Wing. I'd watch TV until like two in the morning, fall asleep on the couch and get up and rinse and repeat. And it was just, it was like a miserable existence, right? <laughs> kind of like all the way around. The The pandemic was hard. We had a toddler at the time. We were we were kind of like trying to tag team watching him. So like some days I would have to like come back from the office for a couple hours because my wife was still working part time. And we had we had like a little bit of support from babysitter, but like our daycare had closed down. That's a pretty bleak picture, right? So like at the at the lowest of the low point, that's what life looked like. And it wasn't, I don't know. That's like both the personal and the professional five. It wasn't very fun. <laughs> and then now it's like I'm not running a business right now. I think there's a reasonable chance that I will run an, another business in the not too distant future. But in that in that kind of future state, I've tried to optimize my life in a sense to to focus on the things that are important to me and not lose track of that right so for example even though i'm not running a business i try and get a lot more consistent sleep now than i used to right i use a an an aura ring to track my sleep i use like a simple low-tech solution to like go to sleep i've got I've got my watch, right? It's like my GPS watch that I use for running, but it has like really like simple alarms, right? It's like there's an alarm that goes off every night at 9.30. And that's that's a signal to me that like, if you're not in bed, you should start thinking about getting in bed. And then the same alarm goes off at 6.30 in the morning. And I'm usually kind of like naturally kind of waking up and that's like a nine hour period of time. So like, that's kind of plenty of sleep. It's like time to get up. And I've tried to be super consistent with that. And like, I get rewarded when I log into my Aura app like every day and I look at like, oh yeah, like there's no like zigs and zags. And it's like, oh, your sleep score was 72 last night. You did a wonderful job. I'm like, oh, thank you, Aura, right? Like, I appreciate your feedback and support, right? But like, it's kind of like a, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, right? Like you're looking for that feedback and you're trying to behave kind of in a way that's in your best interest, right? But like you're held accountable by the technology, et cetera. That to me is like a foundational habit that will help me better kind of prioritize my life. And then I wake up, I don't check my phone. It's like we keep them out in the kitchen on chargers and turn the light on in the bedroom. My wife and I get up at the same time and I'll read my Bible or do a devotion. Or right now we're jointly reading a book on marriage by this guy named Tim Keller. I'm reading like four or five pages of that, 10 pages of that in the morning. And then I'm actually reading the handbook. I'll read like a section of that, right? So it's like personal and kind of professional reading, but like no screens, a little bit of reading. And then I've got kind of a list of things that I I look at every day. I've got an email that I literally like snooze and it's the first thing in my inbox at like 5.30 in the morning. So I can know it's going to be at the top of the box of like, here are your priorities, spiritual life, Lindsay, then my kids, Lindsay's my wife. Then third is like health, then professional life. The end is like friends, then family. They're all important to me, but like I'm trying to order them in a way that if I look at them every morning and I set myself up to not 
directly go into the inbox or like directly go onto the screen. Those habits are building that I go out. Now I take kind of like an hour to myself in the morning and the kids are usually out by 7.30 and my wife's out in the kitchen with them. So I go out and I eat breakfast with them. I still am not on my phone until like eight o'clock, like get up at seven. Like I don't pick my phone. I try not to pick my phone up till like eight in the morning. And when I go out into the kitchen at 7.30, because I've looked at my priorities and I know that what comes first is Lindsay, I go give her a hug and a kiss, right? Like it seems simple and silly. I wasn't doing that before, right? Like I would do it like periodically and I go around and like hug my two kids. And that started my day, right? That might be the last thing I do right that day, right? But like, at least I'm trying to like start things off with like a, a foundational list of priorities. And I think when I become CEO again, or if I do, or whatever, whatever the, the big ambitious thing that I dig into next, I'm hoping that those, those simple disciplines, those simple daily habits form a foundation that can't be eroded. Because when I was CEO of Alliance, like I still think I was like a relatively disciplined guy before I started that experience. But a lot of those disciplines just eroded on the margin, like my diet, my sleep habits, my fitness habits, the, the interactions I was having with my kids and with my wife, right? They all just kind of like slowly eroded over time to a point where I didn't even recognize what was going on anymore, but it didn't happen overnight, right? It just happened a little, little bit every day. Yeah. Like when you compare your kind of daily thought process, mindset, maybe emotional balance throughout the day, how do you feel now versus when you were running the business. And I, I imagine like, obviously it sounds like you were sleeping a lot less and diet, exercise, family life was struggling. I imagine like it'd be a lot harder to stay focused and balanced and concentrated throughout the day if that's the situation you're working through versus today where it sounds like it's much more balanced and healthy. I'd use the word centered, balanced, centered, whatever you want to call it, right? But like, I, I don't know, like if you think, you think about the parable in the Bible where they talk about the house that's built on the rock or the sand, right? Like. It used to be built on the sand, right? And now like foundationally, things are built on on more of a solid foundation. It's a solid, more centered experience where I can stay more focused or I can be super present when I'm with my kids, right? When before, even like I can remember, I, I was doing this weird thing, like when I'm running the business, I wasn't aware of it at all. But my wife would point out to me, I would be like muttering to myself. So like my lips would be moving, right? And I would be like, I don't know, I'd be like fighting with an employee or like I'd have some like internal battle that was going on inside my mind that it would start to like physically manifest itself on my face. And every once in a while, like I'll still do it. And she's like, Chud, you're doing it again. And I was like, oh, sorry. I, I get like kind of lost in my own thoughts. Now it's maybe like positive thoughts. Before it was like just like a super negative kind of self-destructive cycle. Yeah, no, I think that these foundational things, they just... And to be clear, like life still punches you in the face every day and you've got an unintended thing that you've got to attend to, right? You act in a way that you shouldn't have with your kids or with your spouse or with, with friends or family or whatever. But I formed those habits that I'm able to quickly reset them the next day rather than having it be like a slow erosion, right? There's always kind of like a reset point. Yeah. Do you think some of these are habits that if you had started your time as CEO with these habits, do you think you could have maintained them? Or was life as CEO at the time just so all-consuming, it's really hard to maintain all of these at the same time? I think that as a first-time CEO, even if I had had maybe a stronger foundation going in, it would have been harder because I just every day was like some new thing that I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And now that I feel like I've had a pretty full CEO experience, like 
I've kind of like seen all the things once, if and when I do it again, plus the habits and foundation, I'm in a much stronger position to have kind of that that staying power, right? Or that ability to to sustain the effort of the marathon for for years or a decade versus like just feel like I was having to roll with the punches on a on a daily and weekly basis. I mean, time will tell, but I, I think it still would have been pretty challenging. I mean, I had a pretty challenging three years of a CEO experience that you can read all about in the in the aforementioned case study. I, I, I still think it would have, even with some of those foundational habits. And, and, and to be clear, I think to part of your point, like they take like a reasonable amount of time and effort, right? And like I was dedicating a lot of time and effort to the business where all of those activities like value add, were they as efficient as they could have been if, if maybe I had a stronger foundation? Probably not. So I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell, but I, I think it still would have been pretty challenging to have that balance the first time around. Yeah. So with your second or potentially second CEO stint in the near future, well, how, how are you planning to adjust either the, the, the time you use as CEO, like when you're working and how you use your team and like different ways to kind of optimize your time better? Because it sounds like you're going to be working perhaps fewer hours. It's not going to be like 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. anymore. It's going to be you know less. You'll have to make sure your time is as efficient as possible. What are some kind of things you're planning to do or strategies or ways to use your team time and tools and what have you to make that time the most efficient? I don't know if this is a direct answer to your question, but it's my philosophy on on maybe business ownership has changed, right? And it's, I alluded to this at the end of the case study, it's about like rich versus king. So like when I when I took other people's money to buy and grow a business, I was pursuing riches first or prioritizing that, right? I don't even know if I was fully aware of it at the time, way back when, five years ago. It feels like a lifetime ago when I made that decision. But I've had, I've had a lot of time to reflect and I've had a lot more exposure to like other types of ownership and search models. And I think my life has changed quite a bit as well over those, over those five years, right? And by extension, my priorities have shifted and changed. And now I prioritize being king. Right. And that can sound like a negative thing. Oh, you want to be a dictator? No, like I want to have, I want to be king of my own domain, whatever that means. Right. And for me, it means like the ability to, if I take other people's money, it won't be in a control position. Right. Like I'll own 51% of the business and I'll communicate clearly with my stakeholders that, like, here's what I'm all about. Right. And at the end of the day, I'm not going to pursue an extra percentage point of IRR in lieu of like being at home at 7 30 to tuck my kids in at night. There are certain kind of things like I just won't, I won't bend or I won't feel the obligation to bend. And I, I don't know, like I, I, I take responsibility seriously. And I think that's part of what made my first CEO experience so challenging, right? Where I was trying to balance these priorities and responsibilities. And I just felt, I felt so responsible and so beholden to my team at the business, to my investors, to my lenders to take a messy situation and, and put the weight of the world on my shoulders and like figure out how to fix it. And if and when I do it again, I I will be starting with a different construct, right? And that that is one in which my boss is my wife, right? And not my investors. And I think that's it's just like a different mindset. It's a different situation, right? It's the it's the classical traditional search versus self-funded search kind of like mentality, but I'm certainly 
gravitating much more to the other side of the spectrum. And if that comes with trade-offs of a, a smaller business or a business that has less growth potential, like those are okay for me, right? Like I'm not, I'm not as concerned with becoming the next billionaire. That's that's not like the driving factor. Like I like small businesses. I think you can make I think you can make a lot of money, but I also think that like it's a valuable place to like spend your time when you have the skill set that I have, like the leadership and the business training, et cetera, right? Where you can make a big difference both for your own family and for for other people. Yeah. And and one thing we were kind of talking about before is that longevity piece where you're trying to design your life such that you carry it on for a long time. And one thing we talked about earlier before was you were adding, you were creating a family kind of during this time and your your life and set of priorities would evolve over time. And I think sounds like a lot of searchers who are, you know, late twenties or throughout their thirties and searching are kind of going through similar transitions where they are getting married, having kids, maybe kids are going to school, they own a house, what have you. Their life is going to evolve perhaps really dramatically over the next five, 10 years or so. For searchers in that position, what kind of advice or set of priorities would you give to them or offer? I think you have to try and be honest with yourself, but I think it's really hard to do because it's hard to know exactly how your life is going to evolve, right? What I think a lot of, let's call it the late 20s search crowd, I think they fail to appreciate or they just fail to even think about this concept, right? Like, I don't think you can solve it. I don't think you can come up with the right answer on on the front end, but I think you have to engage with it and you have to accept the fact that this is a long-term engagement and my life and priorities will change along the line. I don't know exactly how and when. And unless you do that, unless you're thoughtful about that or you force yourself to with your significant other, or if you don't have a significant other yet, but you might, right? Like project this is kind of where I want my life to be, right? It's likely that I'll end up in some, in the vicinity where I want to be geographically. Like, do I want to be married, not married? Do I want to have kids, not have kids? Do I want to be able to like be a nomad and just buy a van and travel all over the place? Like you can still see it, be a CEO of like certain types of businesses and do that, right? So like, I think I failed to engage with that just for being naive kind of standpoint. Like I just didn't, Nobody had kind of pointed that out to me, right? It's kind of like, it seems very obvious. And you would say, well, like, of course, everybody engages with it. And I think maybe people do, but it's like more superficial. I think it takes hearing from people like me that have gone through like a really challenging experience, say like, hey, look, this could be your life. These are some of the challenging things that could happen. And you'll be better prepared for those if if you try and do this exercise yourself and project, right? Because it's just like, it's this... It's this kind of like compounding effect in your life that's like really, it's like compound interest, right? It's like the hardest, what did Einstein say? It's like the eighth wonder of the world. People just like can't understand it. I think this is a similar concept of like compounding inside of your life. It happens very slowly over time. And then all of a sudden you wake up and it's exponential. Things have just wildly changed and you didn't even realize that it happened. And like, you're a different person. You have different priorities, right? Like you're thinking about you're thinking about your ambitions or aspirations or priorities like they're just they're just changing. Before you were focused on 80 hours a week, let's grow this thing at 30% a year versus 25% a year. That's just fine. I don't know. I think it's I think it's really hard to do, but I'd encourage people to to try. If that makes sense. Yeah. What are some tactics you could use to try to engage with those 
changing dynamics over time. Maybe some milestones you could set for yourself or well, yeah, what other what, what tactics do you think you could use? I mean, this is interesting because I, my wife and I, we started at a pretty early age, like when we got married in our mid-20s. We do like an annual like goal setting exercise. And we both have these binders, these books, these notebooks, right? That like we we like carry around. We've moved all over the place and they stay with us, right? And we kind of tried to we tried to do this like at the beginning. Here are here's here's some goals that we want to accomplish this year. Here's where we want to be 20 years from now. Let's kind of work backwards, like similar to like the EOS framework for your company, right? What's the big hairy thing that you want to get to? Let's pick that and then work our way backwards. We both did that kind of like individually and as a family throughout our our lives and careers, like pre-search, pre-kids, pre-business school. And it was it was kind of like an effective, effective type process. Did we lose track of it a little bit when I bought the business and things kind of thing things went through this this deep trough <laughs> in, in the cycle of our life? Sure. But I think that, that I think that was super helpful and important for us, right? And it's a super low tech kind of thing. You just once a year, January first, right? Send a set a calendar invite, set a date date with your significant other or yourself or a mentor or a friend that you trust and just like write some stuff down on, on where where you're at and where you want to go. You can develop it and be super robust, but you can also like it doesn't have to be. And then remind yourself, like even if you're only looking at it once a year, ideally you'll, you'll look at it a little bit more frequently. But it's not something you look at every day, but you look at it maybe once a quarter or, or once a year, and and that's that's one way in which to manifest success in your life. There's always going to be that element of luck, but like if you work hard and plan, there's a lot better chance that you're gonna you're gonna get where you want to go than if if you don't do those things. What kind of goals did you have this year? So this past year, kind of going back to, to last fall, we it's a good question. I'd have to I'd have to pull out my goal book to, to, to say for sure. It was to spend a lot of time with my with my family. We tried to hit some national parks. So we went to like four or five national parks in, in six months, which was awesome. We like to do that. I had a goal when my when my son was born right before I bought the business, I ran a hundred mile ultra marathon back in 2018. And I wanted to try and do that again. And I set a goal to do that again this year. I ended up not being successful in that goal, right? But like that was a big that was a big theme for 2022 was to to repair relationships, to get back on track with fitness, to reset habits, and to kind of reflect on what I wanted to do next. Those aren't like the specific ones, but those are kind of like the broad themes of, of what the what 2022 was all about for at least for me. Yeah. The fitness one is pretty interesting. I've personally noticed that I my kind of centeredness or balance throughout the day is so much better when I exercise in the morning. And it's now that I've got a better ha- one of my goals this year was to have a more consistent exercise routine. And after having one and going on and off of it for travel or for other reasons, or if I'm sick, it's pretty dramatic how much it affects your mood throughout the day or your ability to handle problems and think a little more long-term. Yeah, you definitely don't have to do what I do, which is like strive to run 100 miles through the mountains, right? <laughs> like that's kind of like high into the right. But like sleep, diet, exercise, if you can get those three things like marginally right most days, you can sustain an effort forever. But the minute you start to let one or the other slip, all the rest of your plans, they're going to kind of, they're just going to degrade in some way. If you're not sleeping consistently, 
or enough or both, you're just not going to be as sharp. And then you're going to want to eat comfort food, right? And then when you get home at night, you're going to want to watch Netflix instead of going out for a jog. I personally like exercise is like super important to me and I'm probably more into it than I need to be. But that's just like something I really enjoy. So like for me, I actually like to run kind of in the middle of the day. I don't think that's right for most people. I think most people should kind of like start out their day and do some sort of exercise in the morning. So that kind of set the tone for the rest of the day. I still like to, I still like to do my exercise before lunch. I, I feel like I perform the best and I'm, 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 I enjoy it the most when it's not like at the butt crack of someone and it's cold or dark outside, right? I like to do it like around like 1030 in the morning. But that's just me, right? I think most people start the, start the day off right the day before by getting some good sleep, get up, exercise, eat a healthy breakfast. And then after that, like the world's your oyster. Like what can't you do if you do those three things right most mornings? Yeah, it's pretty amazing when you have the diet, exercise, and sleep dialed in. Like I, I used to think like, oh, I don't have time to do those things. And then you start doing them, and you're like, oh, I'm actually sharper and I'm more productive and stuff gets done. Or stuff that wasn't important that I may have done earlier, now I just don't do or push off to you know someone else or something else. Your willpower is so strong. I think it's like priorities. And it's also like, I think the counter argument is that like, you don't have time not to do them. It's I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jeff Olson's book, The Slight Edge. It's like these simple, like he just, it's like a self-help book, right? Like he's, he's just talking in platitudes about like this one basic concept that if you want to be successful in life, do the small, simple things right every day. The things that are, they're hard to do because they're, they're easy not to do, right? It's like they, they fall on that, they fall on that edge, that spectrum, right? That like, it's easy to not go to sleep at 9.30, but it's also like easy to go to sleep at 9.30. So like, it's simple, just go do it. And if you do those simple, if you do those simple things, right? Like most days you're on, you're on the positive side of the edge, right? But it's like literally like a knife edge, right? Like it's a really hard thing. And once you get down on the other side, you just like start slipping down to the bottom of the hill. I, I, it's a recommended, it's a recommended read. If you haven't, if you haven't read it, that's like the concept. It's those simple daily things. They're just as easy to do as they are not to do, right? But they make all they can make all the difference in the world. Yeah. You mentioned going to bed at 9.30 being one of those slight edge habits. What are some other examples for you? Yeah. So over the past year, kind of sleep diet exercise, like in addition to the to the quality time with my wife and my kids, have been manifested in in the following ways, like the sleep stuff I talked about. I've gotten on like an oatmeal kick, right? So oatmeal is pretty healthy food. And I've had oatmeal probably 95% of the mornings over the past 365 days. And it's, for me, it's like a ritual, right? So like, I, I don't get like instant oatmeal, like I make steel cut oats myself, right? It takes like 10 or 15 minutes. And it's during that half hour or so when I'm like trying to be fully present with the kids. My son, Logan, like he helps, right? And then my daughter, Lake, she's like two and she like loves these oatmeal concoctions that I make. So she's always like trying to get up on the stool next to me to like have some. I'll mix in dark chocolate, like cocoa nibs and blueberries. And like, it's like, it's good stuff. And a little bit of honey, like it's, it's probably high calorie, which is fine. Cause like I'm burning a couple thousand calories a day because of how much I run. If I didn't exercise as much, I would probably cut down on the extra sweet stuff that I put in it and the volume that I eat. But like, it's like a healthy basic meal that you can kind of like, part of what I like about it is you're not just like pouring cereal in a bowl, right? It's like, I get out my, 
pot that I use every day for it, right? Like I measure out my cup of water, then my half a cup of oatmeal. I stir it up. I wait the 10 minutes for it to boil. I prepare my peanut butter and my fixings and everything else I'm going to mix in with it. Then I mix it in and I get to kind of sit down. I don't drink coffee, but it's like my, it's like my cup of coffee kind of daily ritual in the morning. I've started to like draw a lot of comfort from it. It's just something like very recognizable. And even now, like I'll travel every once in a while to like go meet with the CEO that I'm working with or something like that. And I'm staying in the Airbnb and like the day before I'm like, Hey man, you got to take me to the grocery store, right? Like I got to get some oatmeal, <laughs> right? Um, because it like grounds my day, even if, even if it's got disrupted by, by travel, right. Or something like that. That to me, like on the diet side has been a, has been kind of a helpful thing to kind of reset. Do I eat perfectly the rest of the day? Not always, but like my wife and I are pretty aligned with, with, the diets on which we're trying to raise our kids of like less processed food and like less added sugar and more, more stuff that's nutritious and delicious and maybe takes a little extra time to prepare. We've always had that sentiment, but like when I was running the business, this is like an anecdote. I would call Papa John's Pappy J's, right? And like, it, it, I don't know if you've ever like had used the app, but it's like magic. We were in Fort Lauderdale, right? I couldn't even drive to the store and come back with my pizza faster than like I could like hit the app and it was like at my door. I would like be depressed and like wanting to eat like a comfort food for second dinner when I was watching the West Wing at like 1030 at night, right? I'd be like, oh, time to order some Pappy J's, right? And I'd, I'd like demolish like half a medium pizza, which is probably like 2000 calories, right? So like, I'm not doing like, I'm not doing that stuff anymore. And I'm running a lot. So I don't know, I probably lost, I don't think I was... I was overweight, but I was like, I had, I was carrying an extra 10 or 15 pounds probably when I was CEO. And I've kind of, I've pushed that all off and my body has kind of changed a bit because of how consistent my exercise routine has been over the years, which is, which is a nice feeling. It's, it's been nice to get back there because I've always been, I've always been pretty fit and always been pretty focused on kind of like running and fitness and had done a bunch of races and marathons and stuff like that before running the business. But then those three years were just super challenging to keep the, keep the routines up. Yeah, no kidding. I bet that feels a lot better. You mentioned not having coffee. Do you not have caffeine at all or do decaf or tea or something else? No. So when I was, this is interesting though. So you, we talked about the submarine life, right? And like submariners, I think they're like chemically, physically, every way you can be addicted to coffee, they're addicted to it. Because like, I don't know, you're on this weird sleep schedule and like the way we ran things when I was on the ship, you're on like a short day. So like every, you're on like a four shift day. So like every third day you were up from midnight to 6am and then 6pm to midnight. And it was just like, it wrecked havoc with your circadian rhythm. Right. So like everybody was just like black coffee, no sugar intravenous. Right. And like, I just, I don't like particularly like the smell of it. I've, I don't know, maybe I get this from my mom, right? Like she like turns her nose up at stuff and like my parents weren't coffee drinkers. So like I'm not a coffee drinker, right? So I, I've never, I've never consumed an entire cup of coffee. I've like had sips here and there. So anyway, like when I was in those days, that was super challenging, right? Cause like when you're up on those odd cycles, like it's really hard to stay awake. So and it was at the point where I was getting like in my late twenties, metabolism starting to slow down a little bit. So like Dr. Pepper and, and, and Mountain Dew and Coke, they didn't do it. So I started switching to like diet soda. And I had like a terrible diet soda habit through my end of the military, like through business school, like through CEO life. And then since then, we don't buy diet soda anymore for in our house. It's like a treat. Like when I go to Chipotle, like I'll get Diet Coke. But now I do usually like green tea. I usually have like six ounces of caffeine or something like that. Yeah, there you go. 
six ounces of caffeine or so like in the morning. And then I try not to do any other caffeine throughout the rest of the day, unless it's just like a special occasion or a treat, because then it's much harder to go to sleep at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And I'm, I'm starting to take like a melatonin supplement just so that I can get into like a really good deep sleep rhythm because I'm a pretty restless sleeper. I try to avoid caffeine like other than in the morning when it helps me like get up and have my bowel movement and get everything started for the day. <laughs> and then later in the day, I try and avoid it. Yeah. Would the submarine do anything to, I guess, I guess on a submarine, people are up all the time, but was there anything to simulate kind of the day night cycle within a submarine or is lighting pretty consistent throughout? And it's, it's really hard to know like psychologically what time it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that we would do red light, right? So like at night in the control room, it was, they call it like rig for red, right? And like the rest of the hallways. So it's like, uh, if you've seen submarine movies, you've seen like, oh, that hallway's dark, but like there's red lights there, right? Like that was used to simulate darkness. It was also, if you're submerged, like it doesn't matter, but we would have to go to the surface, at least the periscope depth to communicate with the outside world kind of like once a day to like let them know we're alive. We had like a broadcast cycle where like either every 12 hours or every 12 months, uh, 24 hours, like depending on where you were at or what you were doing, like you had to call home, you had to phone home and say, Hey guys, we didn't sink, we're still here. And when you did that, if it was nighttime, people would be on the periscope, right? And they'd be looking out and it'd be dark. So they didn't want pupils dilating back and forth. So you would rig control for red so that it simulated dark inside so that you could be looking at the screens in the control room and then go on the periscope. And you didn't have like a transition period with your pupils, like you could your pupils were already dilated so that you could you could see well in the dark. But they did something stuff similarly throughout the rest of the ship to to simulate daylight and darkness. But I don't know, your circadian rhythm got so messed up that you're just kind of like tired on the all the time. And the oxygen level in the air was lower than normal air to prevent fires, which also is like like high altitude essentially, right? Like it was just 18% still like 21%, right? So it was actually really great for exercise, right? Because you got you got like an extra workout. So like I can remember like I would like run on the treadmill pretty frequently. And like when I got to like dry land, I was like, oh man, this 21% oxygen air, like this stuff is good, right? Like because you just got used to living in that lower oxygen environment where you're just kind of like sleepy and tired all the time. Plus your circadian rhythm was messed up because like every third day you were up from like late at night and early in the morning. And it was just miserable. They've actually since done a bunch of research and studies and now they've shifted they shifted it twenty back to a twenty four hour day because it turns out when you mess with people's circadian rhythm and you make them really tired and put them in a low oxygen environment, they don't like perform real well and they like don't make decisions very well. Right. We thought it was really ironic and it was kind of like there was like friction like between the submarine community and the pilot community. Like pilots were mandated to get eight hours of sleep before they got in a plane. And you could put an officer in charge of a $3 billion submarine on zero rest, right? And it was just like, okay, like that's just kind of like how we've done it for forever. So like, we'll keep doing it that way. Turns out that's like not the best answer. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't seem like quite the best answer. What other changes either in kind of daily habits or values are you looking to continue adjusting and you know achieve in the future? I have kind of like, these these outcomes or these areas of outcomes that I'm I'm trying to like reorient is like my north star. So like what are what are these like guiding principles that I'm going towards, right? And we talked about it a little bit before. When I wake up in the morning, I'm trying to like 
reset and remind myself, these are my priorities. These are the orders. These are the areas, right? But I'd categorize it. I've talked about this before with people where I think like it's really hard to do all three of these things like in complete 33% balance, like all the time. At any given time, like one is going to suffer, but you got to kind of try and cycle them around. So I've tried to break out my life into like my spiritual and my family life, then kind of like my personal life of my personal health and wellness, and then my professional life and tried to be thoughtful and segment them out so that I can try and load balance them at any given time. Or if I'm cognizant of like, hey, I'm training for a 100 mile ultra marathon right now, which probably means like I can work less just because like it takes a lot of time and energy to do that. And like my family life will suffer a little bit. But once I finish with that training cycle, I'm going to reset and I'll refocus on some of these other areas and priorities, right? Like hear lots of people talking about like seasons in their life. I think that's just another euphemism for like, there are three areas of, of kind of who you can be as a human being, right? Like your work life, your personal health and wellness, and then like your friends and your family. I think, I think you can balance them equally at some periods of your time. Some periods of your life, they're going to fall out of balance, but you need to be need to be cognizant of and focused on the fact that if they do fall out of balance, like on, or you can, you can have them out of balance for a period of time on purpose, but you have to hold yourself to accountable to like an end date. There's going to be an end date, this, this push or this sprint, right. Where like works just really crazy. And it's going to be really crazy because we're doing an acquisition or we're selling the business or we're rolling out a new ERP system. It's just all hands on deck. But at the end of that, I'm going on vacation for like three weeks, right? Or whatever it is, right? So that like my family who missed me during that period of time gets some of me back. Right now, I feel like I'm able to pretty well balance it because I don't have, like I'm not training for the 100 mile race anymore. I haven't fully jumped into like a new big thing professionally. And I've been so focused on kind of the family life aspect of it that that's still a pretty big component. So like, I feel pretty balanced right now, but I know that it will fall out of balance. But my intention is to to be thoughtful about when that would end and also be always be aware that like it's a third, a third, a third in each direction. And you're best suited when you can do a third in each direction. If you can't for a little while, you got to figure out how to, how to supplement or pay back one side or the other. Yeah. One of our closing questions is the changed belief one. And I, this feels very on topic for our whole episode, really any particularly strong belief you used to have that you've switched your mind on. Yeah. So the one that I came up with is related maybe tangentially to the conversation that we've had today, but uh, I don't know, like the way I grew up and then my experience being trained as an engineer and then serving in the military, I always looked at the world as kind of like black and white. It was either right or it was wrong. There is either a way to do things or there's a way not to do things. And I think I've come to the conclusion that that's not like a full view of the world. Most things are actually like in between. They're like, it depends. It's gray, it's a gray area. It's very unsatisfying for for my right brain to have to like come to terms with that. I think that's the case, right? That being said, I still think you have to like live your life by a set of priorities and principles and and have those kind of North Stars or those, those kind of centering uh, aspirations. But outside of that, there's a lot of ambiguity and that's challenging to navigate. But if you have if you're kind of centered in the right way and you have those priorities, I think you're going to be just just fine. And that also extends to like the small business world. When I went in, right, I was just like, everybody tells the truth. Nobody lies. Nobody cheats. And it turns out like 
almost all small business owners are like cutting a corner in some way, right? Like some more substantially than others. And I always just thought like, if there's a regulation, people follow it. If there's tax law, like people pay their taxes. And it turns out some people just don't like follow the rules and like they don't get caught and they don't get held accountable for it. And that's just the way the world works. Or even even they do get caught, but it's just like a slap on the wrist and then they just go back out and keep polluting or keep cheating on their taxes or keep doing that thing in the in the business world that's not I would consider like unethical, maybe it's not illegal. And that was pretty eye-opening for me when I started to interact with so many small business owners. And I came I came from like a glass half full, like think the best of people. These people are definitely not trying to hoodwink me. Maybe I was just a little bit naive, but I've come to come to a conclusion that, that some people cheat, some people lie, some people steal. Sometimes they don't get caught and sometimes they don't get held accountable. And that's just reality. <laughs> Do you feel like that's made you more cynical or just a little bit more flexible in how you view that different actions? I think it did make me very cynical for for quite a period of time. But I think I think now I've kind of come more full circle where it's just an awareness thing, right? Where I'm not as bitter and as cynical because like I've recovered a little bit. Like I'm feeling really good about my personal and professional life and, and all the experience that I've had of are in the column of like they were worthwhile to have done and I'm glad to be I'm glad to be on the other side of them right and I'd do it again if I had to because of what I learned from it Does that makes sense yeah that makes sense what's the best business you've ever seen so I have two that I've been thinking about more recently one is internet service providers both on the small and the large side I've come into contact with local ISPs that like are in rural areas. And I, I had lunch with a business owner a couple of weeks ago and this guy was telling me about his business. I was like telling him like, is Starlink a threat to you? And he's like, yeah, we had two people switch from switch to Starlink. They came back to us because it didn't actually work in their area yet. And they were just like unfamiliar with the technology and setup. I was like, well, how many customers do you have? He's like, oh, we have like a thousand customers, like a very small business, right? Like clearing a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. I was like, well, how many how many new ones, like, what's your churn? Like, how many new ones did you get and how many did you lose? And he's like, oh, like, we added 200 customers last year. I think we lost three, but then we got two of those three back. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? Like, it was just like an amazing business, like super sticky product. And he's just like a local internet service provider that's, he's deployed a little bit of his own fiber and he has like some, he has some some wireless devices on a few different towers that he maintains, but like otherwise he's piggybacking on some other telecom and just like white labeling their white labeling their bandwidth. He's not like Comcast isn't trying to compete him away. He's got like this little niche in this little rural area where like Comcast isn't going to spend the millions of dollars to like put the infrastructure in. It's just not it's like the juice isn't worth the squeeze, right? And then you go to Comcast, right? Like I happen to have Comcast where I'm at. We're like the last stop on the line. There's no other option unless I want to do Starlink, and that's twice as expensive and 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 has some like latencies and connectivity issues sometimes, and like they can charge me whatever they want. They only charge me forty bucks a month. I don't I don't know why. I'd have to pay the two hundred bucks if they were going to charge it. So I don't know. I, I feel like the telecom space is. I think it's interesting. It's changing and evolving a lot. But I've I've seen and experienced some of those business models both kind of personally as a consumer and. When I looked looked at businesses in the space, that like they might not be super growthy, but they just feel like they'll be around forever and they're super sticky. And then I've also come across like some specialized job boards that I think are super interesting, where 
you can build either the you can build the employer side or the the job seeker side. If you could build them both, you can kind of own the whole thing, right? Like outside of the Indeed world, outside of LinkedIn world, like if you're super hyper focused on like some sort of specialty, there's so much need for that right now, especially on the employer side where like people are trying to find people are trying to like find good technicians. They're trying to find like executive talent to join small businesses. I just think there's a lot of opportunity there. I've seen I've seen a few that are they're pretty interesting, but there's kind of that riches and niches theme. They can't ever become big businesses, but they'll always be really, really wonderful small businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Those are those are two great ones, especially the internet service provider one. We'll have to look into that more. Well, I hope you find something interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing a little bit on the podcast. It's not not a typical set of circumstances or stories that folks are generally comfortable sharing. So really enjoy getting the chance to hear a little bit about them and and you sharing so many more lifestyle changes and things you're working on. It's, it's definitely fun to hear about. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I I actually enjoy talking about it because I feel like I've feel like I'm in a good place now and I've kind of come full circle and I hope people can benefit from hearing my story and learning some of the things that, that I've been able to implement in, in, in my life and be successful with. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.